Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia's reigning Teacher of the Year, Tracy Nance, offers her view on the teaching of critical race theory. We owe our kids the very best. And the best way to do that is to acknowledge those systemic barriers and make sure that we're taking steps to tear them down. And a conversation with Dr. Karen Knudsen, newly named CEO of the Atlanta-based American Cancer Society. Those conversations and more coming up in just a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a final executive order extending the state's COVID-19 public health emergency, but... It ends July 1st at 12 a.m. In a statement, Governor Kemp cited the Department of Public Health, state agencies, and other entities as working together to protect both lives and livelihoods. Kemp went on to say, quote, more Georgians are getting vaccinated, our economic momentum is strong, and people are getting back to normal, close quote. Again, Governor Kemp signing an executive order that ends the state's COVID-19 public health emergency effective July 1st. In other news, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the local law firm Bondurant, Mixon & Elmore have filed a lawsuit against the Georgia Department of Labor over unpaid and unprocessed employment claims. The lawsuit on behalf of four Georgia residents alleged delays in processing, paying, and hearing appeals on unemployment claims violate state and federal law. The plaintiffs want the judge to order the department to follow the law and for the state to pay monetary damages. However, Commissioner Mark Butler has maintained the agency has caught up. The plaintiffs are asking a judge to certify the suit as a class action on behalf of other workers who have suffered delays. Finally, it's game one of the NBA Eastern Conference Championship between the Atlanta Hawks and Milwaukee Bucks tonight. And the so-called experts believe the Hawks don't have a chance. Look, I have a lot of respect for Atlanta. A lot of respect for Atlanta. Ice tray is a different kind of dude. But if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, they are by far the favorite. If there's a year to close the deal, it is this year. You win the whole damn thing. That's ESPN basketball analyst Jay Williams on the Keyshawn, Jay, and Zubin show. Of course, the great thing about being an expert, sometimes you can be wrong. The Hawks return home for Game 3 of the championship series this Sunday. Game 4, also at State Farm Arena, is next Tuesday. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The American Cancer Society has been in existence for 107 years. Originally called the American Society for the Control of Cancer, the name changed after a reorganization in 1945. Atlanta is the global headquarters for the American Cancer Society. And recently, a historic first for this organization, 
Dr. Karen Knutson began her role as CEO, the first woman to do so, and also the first scientific and oncology researcher to serve in the top executive position in the modern era. You know what that means now? Dr. Knutson joins me. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's begin with what is still the the major health crisis impacting the world right now, and that is the COVID-19 pandemic. And you as a scientist in this field, can you sum up through your viewpoint, just kind of what we've all been in the last 14 months? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask. Just just before this interview, I I just got off a, a Uh, Zoom meeting with the National Academy of Sciences, all of us coming together, people who've led cancer centers like myself and led them through the pandemic, Uh, key organizations like ACS, I'm really serving a double role in this this group to, to have a workshop to talk about what are the lessons learned? What are the things that we did right that we need to carry forward? And so much of what we talked about today is communication and evidence based shared decision making. We saw as many sectors did, but we saw in healthcare delivery and in cancer care, more effective, nimble decision-making than we've ever seen before. Um, at the time I was leading uh, at one of the nation's uh, largest cancer centers, um, the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, which is across actually two states, but centered in Philadelphia. And uh, you know, we, we worked together to do the right thing by patients from the very beginning when we were working on no data. Um, scrambled to make sure that everyone had masks, that we have safety procedures for this immunocompromised patient population, but also worked together, took the calls from the community hospitals who said, you know, our nurses have COVID. Can you take them? We've got patients who need radiation therapy or chemotherapy today. And that kind of collaboration, communication, and having all of our decision-making guided by evidence, but doing the right thing for the patient that needs to continue moving forward. And I think we're all committed to that. And that leads me to our next part of the conversation because the COVID-19 pandemic exposed longtime existing inequities in pretty much every aspect of our life. And when it comes to access to quality and inclusive healthcare, none of which I know is new to you, the question, and I'm wondering if you're also looking at with your new role, will the American Cancer Society add new initiatives and new campaigns due to the coronavirus ordeal. And you sort of just touched on it with that, with your answer in the first question. Without question. So this has been a passion of mine, again, leading this large cancer program in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, Philadelphia is a very dense, highly populated, highly diverse, high cancer incidence and high cancer mortality uh, city. It's, it's why that cancer center exists. And I, I'm really proud to have run the SageNet Cancer Hospital for Center City, Philadelphia. So it's, it's cancer care for that hospital. It's the case that uh, it's unacceptable that we have zip codes where there's such a striking difference in cancer mortality across that city. And, and it was one of the hallmarks of, of my leadership team and my cancer center was really doing something about it. There's so much that we can do as cancer centers to reduce cancer inequities. Things like opening your infusion center for chemotherapy nights and weekends so that patients who are on hourly wage can get access to care and don't have to lose their job in order to get cancer treatment. Things like having a screening van that goes out into the community so you can do mammograms on site instead of asking people to who don't necessarily have transportation or good access to get to where you want to go uh, to get seen. So there are a lot of things that the cancer centers can do. And we did them in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. What I'm excited about, about the American Cancer Society is they also hold that value. I hold that value. My leadership team holds that value. And we're taking experiences like mine, experiences that the other cancer center directors have had, and we're working more closely with them than ever. That's part of this new administration's role. And seeing what it is that we can do to, when possible, help bring education out into the community. ACS has a major role in doing that to assist with screening so that we're catching cancers early across zip codes and we'll be measuring ourselves by how well we're, we're going out and permeating into the communities that we know are underserved, um, but also using evidence. So research to try to understand cancer disparities and what is our place uh, through research, advocacy and direct patient support, uh, such as providing housing, providing transportation, uh, providing education to patients across all communities, but especially focused on those that are that are truly underserved. 
that's our place in the universe is ACS. We are still in a pandemic. Are you all still hindered? Are there still some barriers to doing some of the work you all have been doing for so long? And if so, how are you having to shift and change? And also you have to think about the safety and welfare of your employees. Without question. So, so the answer is yes, we still are impaired, but we see a light at the end of the tunnel and we have a plan. So if we think of ACS, the, the goal, overall goal of ACS is to improve the lives of cancer patients and their families. And we, we've you know, such a proud history of that and all the things that we do. And we do that through research, through advocacy and through patient support. So the research mission actually went on. So the research teams were continuing to conduct research largely associated with cancer risk and cancer prevention, something they could continue to do and felt passionately about. They also fund research out at the other cancer centers and the cancer centers largely kept oncology research going on. So research was uh, probably one of the least impeded. Advocacy, where we truly have been incredibly effective as an organization in affecting change, not just at the national level in Washington, DC, but at the state level and at the community level, some of that does require face-to-face interaction and it requires the legislatures to be meeting, which they had you know, reduced. So that, that, that really important work has marched on with some difficulty, but you know, in a Zoom-like environment. It's the patient support component that still has been the most difficult. So during that time, we were unfortunately unable to go and give rides to our to you know to patients who are really in need. We had to, to close our Hope Lodges, which is where we provide housing for patients and their families. But we're seeing those reopen. I would say that in Atlanta, um, in, the conta, in, the, in the background of the pandemic though, we didn't waste any time, we renovated. So I had, uh, you know, we were just there uh, last week walking through the, the new Hope Lodge and I'm so excited about what this will mean for Atlanta and what it will mean for patients and their families who need truly advanced care. Are you giving employees an option if they can to return to work or still work remotely? How are you maneuvering through that? Yeah, it, for yes, um, we absolutely are taking the, um, the preferences of our workforce into account. But remember, ACS is everywhere, right? We're in 5,000 communities across the U.S. And so what we do in one geography may be different than another because they're emerging from the pandemic at different levels. Mm-hmm. So we're while we have an overarching strategy as an organization to ensure the safety of our employees and the safety of the patients that we're in direct contact with is a, that has to be our North star to guide decision-making the decisions will ultimately be made at a a more local level so that we're doing the right thing. I am just so excited that we now have, uh, you know, are started to, to really put, Uh, dates on when we're reopening Hope Lodge and when we're reopening the opportunity to to provide uh, transportation. In terms of employees whose jobs may not require them to fully come back into the office, um, we've we've given a survey to the employees, you know, what are your preferences and to to all of their um, managerial groups to ask, you know, what can get done. And again, I think we will be guided by doing the right thing. Uh, and what's the right thing for our employees and right thing for our patients. Because you all have a lovely big building downtown Atlanta. <laughs> so Atlanta, you know, Atlanta, the, the, the uh, you know, pandemic has allowed us to think a little bit differently. And because we are in communities across the United States, you know, Atlanta has long been the Center for Research Excellence. It truly is the research headquarters. And this makes perfect sense because of the the co-location with these phenomenal uh, research institutions, Emory, Morehouse, others, but also the CDC. So research headquarters, I'm hoping will actually even, you know, grow over or as we emerge from the uh, pandemic there. The advocacy headquarters will, has always remained in, you know, in DC. So Atlanta really is the the brain trust uh, of what it is that we do for the research mission to think differently about cancer prevention, detection, and treatment. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Karen Knutson, who just began her role as CEO of the Atlanta-based American Cancer Society. She's the first woman to do so. I want to shift for a moment and talk about you and your incoming leadership at the American Cancer Society. I know you're just not even a full month into the role of CEO, but your experience in cancer research and running cancer centers and so forth, 
How would that help you in this new role, you think? I, I think I have a unique lens on ACS. That's why I was so enthusiastic when they gave me a call and, and the board talked about their new vision for this, for the organization moving forward. I have had such an appreciation from every aspect of what ACS does. So I am an oncology researcher. My own expertise is in advanced prostate cancer. And up until the day that I took the helm of, uh, as a CEO of ACS, I had a longstanding funded lab. So I've seen firsthand what ACS can do to forward that knowledge that gets implemented into the clinic really rapidly. So I've appreciated that as a researcher myself, but also as a cancer center director in terms of seeing how just even just small pilot funds can help, uh, especially an early career investigator or early career clinician, which are also funded by the ACS, to take a bold new concept and test it. Can this help people? So I've seen that perspective. And I've seen the perspective from advocacy because I understood as a cancer center director that part of the way to affect change, especially when it comes to equity and access, is through uh, policy, local, state, and national policy. And so in order to really get things done and really push towards equitable cancer care, that has to be a part of component. So I had the good fortune as a cancer center director to band together with the other centers, but also organizations like ACS to go for a common mission. Things like One Voice Against Cancer, where multiple organizations come together to say, it's not just the Sydney Kimball Cancer Center at Jefferson or ACS who believes this, but this ACS led One Voice Against Cancer organization is really fully behind this, this idea, this policy. It gets work done. And then the third part, the patient support component, I saw it every day. You know, to me that the impact of ACS you could see on any given day at my center. And I would like that to be felt across as many needy populations in the nation as possible. You talked about the mission of the American Cancer Society, which is pretty simple mission. When you connect that to everything that you just talked about and, and the board and their new vision, those are your top priorities. Are there any other areas that you feel you least want to start assessing to maybe strengthen, implement, totally change? Yeah. So this is what we're working through right now with the leadership team. But I, what I've uh, encouraged all of the group to do is to ensure that we are, uh, you know, taking every opportunity to refine the impact of what it is that we do. If we have a choice of five different programs and the top three are going to be the ones that have the most lives touched or can meet our goal to improve lives, those have to be the ones that we choose. And let's double down on the things that only ACS you know, is really doing. We're, I think we're the only cancer organization that's got advocacy units in all 50 states. And as we talked about, the local and national, local and state level is as important as national, right? So, so that's really key. I, you know, we're, we're giving funds for research to all of the major cancer centers so that not just our work, but additional work can get done to synergize and accelerate cures. That's a goal. But we have to be really selective in our choices of the things that right now, 2021 and beyond, have to, you know, can be of impact. Part of that has to be, everything has to be pushed through the lens of equity. So, you know, the cancer centers are really focused on this. ACS is really focused on this. So I think a new thing are partnerships, even greater partnerships there between those organizations um, that already have a natural affiliation. We can double down on those. Bringing in key stakeholders from pharma, from the private sector, uh, who can help us uh, even really catalyze what it is we'd like to do to improve lives. That's where our push is forward. And improve lives is more than just a reduction in cancer mortality or cancer incidence. It's also quality of life. You know, so something that I do hope uh, we, for, we continually instill in ACS is the voice of the patient. Because I have to tell you, and in, in all my years in, in leading the cancer center and in oncology, when you tell someone that they have a highly advanced stage of disease frequently, their first, and you ask them, what are your top five concerns? This is data, this is research, it's not anecdote. Frequently, it's not, I wanna survive. Of course, we want the patient to survive. They wanna survive, it goes without question. But their own top of mind goes to, what's the impact on my family? What's the impact on my job? What's the impact on my finances, right? Which relates to all of it. And so financial toxicity is part of a quality of life. So I hope that we as ACS embrace far beyond cancer cures and into the whole patient. Um, that, that is the improving lives component. So that's, you'll hear a lot more from us about that. 
being a CEO, it means you also have to look at the, the finances and the American Cancer Society. I think you all have an annual operating budget of close to, and correct me if I'm wrong, $700 million somewhere in that ballpark. That's been about right. Um, you know, of course, during COVID, everyone was a little challenged, uh, ACS amongst them, but we actually have done, I think, you know, we're, we're able to complete our mission this year. We had a really great meeting yesterday with the leadership team where we can do even a little bit more um, toward the research, advocacy, and patient support than we had even thought. And I think it is because people recognize ACS as converting, you know, their time, resources, whatever they're donating to the society into real action that really is a measurable output on someone's life. So I'm very grateful It's because it really is more than just the dollars that come into ACS, which is of course critically important. That's how we do our work. Mm -hmm. But it's the case that we have this amazing group of volunteers throughout the country that also help us with their mission. As an organization that also relies on charitable giving, as someone who works in public radio, we definitely understand that. Here's where we know that Charitable giving actually increased during the early months of the pandemic last year. It slowed some in the middle of the year and picked up towards the end of 2020. Are you also assessing how the American Cancer Society might need to revamp or modify how it seeks donations? Not just partnerships and funding from foundations and so forth, but overall. Yeah. So th this also, again, is, is we're having run a, a really large cancer program across 14 hospitals definitely helps because it, it, that's also a not-for-profit. And so in that situation, you, there's always more that you want to do, um, you know, than you actually can. And so making strategic choices toward impact is what I've been discussing in these last 18 days with the leadership team. And even, actually, in truth, even before I came on, uh, you know, so we are in the in the depth of what we call this integrated strategic and financial planning process, um, which I think they're actually enjoying because it's it's actually the timing is right too. As we emerge from the pandemic, the kinds of things that that are totally mission critical right now, for example, an assistance and push toward return to screening that's got to rise to a higher priority. That might not have been our number one priority prior to the pandemic, but we have to be responsive to the environment around us. So aligning our finances to our strategic priorities is what we're doing. But again, the North Star is always, what's the right thing for the patient that no one else is doing? What is it the thing that only ACS can do? And so we're, we're uh, you know, very much pointed toward that type of decision-making. I feel really great about it. And again, it's, it's with the equity lens and beyond just what one normally think of as cancer outcomes of incidence and mortality. It has to, quality of life has to be part of that too. And finally, Dr. Knudsen, as it relates to equity and messaging, I remember early this year reading a piece that talked about how poor communication exasperates health inequities and what to do about it. And as it relates to messaging, uh, you and I both know that often there's a certain guideline that's issued for uh, people of color as it relates to a certain condition, whether it's you know, mammogram screening or, or colon cancer screening or prostate screening. And then it'll change again, which can be very confusing uh, for folks. How do you see the American Cancer Society being able to make sure its message is on point and reaching diverse populations. So this is, I, this is a central place in the universe for ACS. We see as one of our longstanding major contributions to the world of setting guidelines, uh, evidence based on evidence. And we're, we're frequently at the forefront of guideline changes. You know, we, we've seen guideline changes just in this past year right, of earlier uh, screening for patients or individuals who are smokers who may be at risk for cancer, for uh, colorectal cancer to start colonoscopies earlier for a subset of individuals. So ACS has been at the forefront of that, sometimes farther in by a couple of years than the rest of the changes. I know it can be confusing because there are a lot of different guidelines, but it is the case that we, we have a number of platforms that we use to message. One is on cancer.org. So, you know, very easy to understand, refresh information. And when there's new evidence, we change the guideline. I think that's why it can be difficult to track. It's also the case that, uh, you know, we do educate providers. It's also, it's not just the general public, but the people who are sending people, for example, to screening guidelines is largely primary care physician. And the the primary care physician is really bombarded with information and seeing a whirlwind of people every day that have a variety of different issues. So they may actually need it simplified for them too. Believe it or not, the electronic health record is really helping that. Mm -hmm. um, but it is the case that 
I saw this in my own pre system previously at Jefferson, how important it is to upload the most important guideline data into the electronic health records so that they don't have to think. They can just, not that they don't think as people, I wouldn't want to say that, but it's the case that it can be easier for them to understand the person in front of them and what their screening miss is. I would say the messaging has to be at both levels. It's, uh, you know, being an advocate for yourself and understanding what is my relative risk of cancer. And if you don't know, talk to your primary care physician to say, you know, I've got a family history. Does it rise to the level where I should have had genetic testing? ACS's website can also help you out with that. But it's also a good discussion to have with primary care. So being an advocate for yourself is enabled by ACS messaging. We also help to, to educate providers not just at primary care, but through in communities across the United States with clear guidelines that are evidence-based and that have stood the test of time. When we started this conversation a while ago and I asked you about your leadership style, how important is listening? I think that's key. So I've been on a listening and learning tour um, of ACS that started in the, in the in the, I spent two months exiting out of Jefferson because I, you know, I loved my cancer center. I still do. And, you know, I'm just so proud of the team and what we've done there, but on nights and weekends, I had a chance to start meeting the leaders and listening and learning. And then as soon as I hit the door could permeate that for a little bit farther through the ranks. And I have to say, just that this is an anecdote of my style. I had such a good time last week. So I had opened up a URL line that said, you tell me, you know, ACS, uh, what are the things that are top of mind for you? What are your questions? What are your concerns? I'm a brand new CEO. What should I know? And I had this amazing feedback. And, you know, some that are so excited. This is really wonderful. And others that say, you know, we wish this thing could get addressed or we wish this thing could get addressed. So we had a town hall and um, pulled in people live, took additional live questions. I had the entire leadership team there with me so that we could start the dialogue of, uh, you know, really understanding our organization as a whole challenged, right? When you have as many communities and, and 50 states to contend with as we do. But it was really wonderful. I heard, I learned so much about ACS that day that I think would take me a lot of trips to actually just get to. So I hope that this feeds forward and that people's willingness to talk to me as a CEO. I had this one remarkable staff member, and I think I'll always remember this, say to me, if I were the CEO, I understand you're really busy. If I were the CEO, here are the 10 things I would do. And each of these, it was kind of like a David Letterman's top 10, right? All 10 of them were feasible. All 10 of them were thoughtful. And it was just a succinct, they were all potential wins, you know? And I thought, okay, this is terrific. This is exactly what I want. And I was open. I can't do everything. I'm not going to be able to answer all of you by email. Like I'd love to, but we're going to have more town halls. So we've already decided that that's going to be more. So the listening is key. And uh, I think that the the more informed we are as leaders at the American Cancer Society by the staff, by patients, by cancer centers, by, by the external industry that's important for oncology and by the communities that we serve, we're gonna make the best decisions if we are in a constant listening tour. I, it has to be a process. And we, as we talked about before, that responds to the world around us. We've got a lot to respond to right now. Dr. Karen Knutson began her role as CEO of the American Cancer Society. Thank you so much for taking time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Me too. Be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Recently on the program, we presented two viewpoints regarding the Buckhead City movement. 
It prompted a lot of feedback from you, our listeners. And you can hear the full conversations online at wabe.org slash closer look. But here's a preview of what you'll hear. First, I spoke with former state lawmaker Ed Lindsay, who co-founded the Committee for United Atlanta. They're opposed to Buckhead becoming a city. Let's start here. Your group is opposed to Buckhead becoming a city. Lay out for our listeners through your lens why that is problematic. Well, first thing you need to understand is that there's an enormous difference between simply creating a city out of an unincorporated area and carving up an existing city. Mm -hmm. Uh, The complicated procedures that take place in the legislature, the difference I would sort of equate to simple math versus calculus in -hmm. terms of the difficulty. You not only have to get a cityhood bill passed, you first you have to get a bill passed that does something called de-annexation. In other words, uh, take certain parts out of the city and that needs to take place first. Mm-hmm. That's what's called local legislation. Mm-hmm. And local legislation requires a majority of the local delegation to agree to it before it can happen. And quite frankly, there's no one representing Buckhead or the city of Atlanta uh, that has signed on to this mm-hmm. idea. And there's only been two folks within the Fulton delegation who signed on to it out of, I believe, 18 different members. So uh, the hurdle to pass it would be extremely high. And But even if somehow they were able to get it passed, you then have some very serious questions that this group simply has not addressed. What's going to happen, for instance, to our city school? The schools are owned by the Atlanta public school system. But if you de-annex from the city of Atlanta, those students are no longer in the APS footprint. So what happens to them? Where do they go to school? That's a question that this organization has not answered. You then have uh, additional questions, for instance, about uh, what to do with the city parks that are located in Buckhead. Mm-hmm. How do you acquire them? How much are you going to have to pay for them? What are you going to do about uh, fire service and how that, uh, those buildings are going to be purchased and paid for? You've got the existing debt of the city of Atlanta. Like in any divorce, uh, you can't simply walk away from from the debt uh, that already exists. And there is approximately, I did a a look at this yesterday, of about $588 million in bond debt that's basically being secured, rather, by property taxes. Then we invited Bill White, CEO and chair of the Buckhead City Committee, formerly known as the Buckhead Exploratory Committee, to come on and address Ed Lindsay's comments and to answer some other questions. So, Mr. White, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Let's start with the school system. How do you all (laughs) propose developing a school district here? Well, uh, unfortunately, Ed has been uh, out of the state legislature for some time. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I love hearing... Uh, folks' opinions about Buckhead who have sold their homes in Buckhead and moved to Brookhaven. That's where uh, Ed Lindsay lives now. But does and he have a valid people. point about the about your public I'll school get, system? Let's focus uh, on well, that. It, it's our public school system. It's not mine or Buckhead's. It's our public school system. How do system. you propose developing a school district? If you let me answer, I will get to it. My opinion is the one you're asking, and I'd like to make it. Make your opinion, please. Thank you. So the current plan with regard to our great public schools here in Atlanta, right? Do you know what the reading and arithmetic scores are in the Atlanta public school system right now? Mr. White, what is your, how do you, Mr. White, how do you all propose developing school districts? The Atlanta public schools will still be where our children are going to go to school. Ed is incorrect. That's number one. But we will be a very vocal voice as a new city for how we get those scores up for our great Atlanta and Buckhead City residents who send their beautiful children to these schools and where they're not getting a return on the investment. There are billions going into Atlanta public school system and the scores are horrendous. We have to get those scores up in terms of, as you know, with school districts. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I have done my research, that there is also, all right now, or as it relates to, a little bit under $590 million in bond debt. This is from property taxes. Would that not be owed to the city of Atlanta? Wouldn't you all have to pay that? Well, that's a great question, too. 
uh, and that will be part of the negotiation. We, of course, are going to honor our portion of whatever continuing obligations are there. Uh, why wouldn't we? We love Atlanta, and we want Atlanta to be successful. Where would the so money come from? Part. Where would the money come from, Mr. White? Where would what money come from? If you all owe the city of Atlanta $588 million. Well, you're saying that that's the number we owe. What I was saying is that when there is this amicable divorce, there will be a negotiation and a settlement. There may be even have some lawsuits. I, I would hate to see that, but uh, it's happened with Sandy Springs. It's happened with Brookhaven. It's happened with most any city that is having a de-annexation uh, from within. Community issues that matter, that's our focus. A reminder, you can hear the full conversations online at wabe.org slash closer look. And then tell us what you think about the push for Buckhead to become a city. Let me know. Rose at wabe.org or take to social media, as y'all love to do, on Twitter at WABE Rose Scott or even on our WABE Facebook page. Stay tuned. There's more Closer Look just ahead. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Georgia Board of Education recently voted on a resolution banning the teaching of critical race theory from its public schools. Now, Closer Look reached out to members of the board, and only Tracy Nance Penley, ex-officio Georgia Board of Education member and Teacher of the Year for 2020-2021, agreed to join us. And she is not speaking on behalf of the board. She's speaking through her own reflection. She teaches fourth grade right here in Atlanta. So we should note Ms. Nance is not a voting member of the board as well. And so Tracy, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. You know, part of my role as Georgia Teacher of the Year is to represent teachers, students, and parents in their interest. And so it was really important for me to speak out and to continue doing so on their behalf. Let's go back a little bit. How long have you been an educator? I have been teaching for 15 years now. And you teach fourth grade, correct? I teach fourth grade. Um, I started in education, just running an after-school program in Greenville, South Carolina for um, kids in underserved neighborhoods, and then went on to study sociology, race and ethnicity, and sociology of education at University of Chicago. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I want to, though, get back to these fourth graders. What is it about that grade that you like? You know, it's really my sweet spot. The kids are still enamored with being together as a community and the teacher and that age, they're just ripe for really moving from the concrete thinking to conceptual thinking. And so they start to get it. They start to see broad themes and strands across history and um, today's events. And it's just really powerful. I love seeing them grow into their potential and seeing them find their interests, the things that make them tick. I want to now refer to something that I read about you. And this was the quote. It said, Tracy Nance Pendley became passionate about social justice and education during her first year at Furman University in 2002. Close quote. I'm going to let you pick it up from here because there's a story that you just mentioned and involves an after school program. Yeah. When I um, first started at Furman University as a freshman, I signed up to be a volunteer. And I thought I would go once a week and help the students. Um, with their homework and do a lesson on morality and character, and that would be it. But the director of the program was actually leaving to go and pastor a church, and so the program was going to end. And so I took it over. It felt like a calling. It felt like the right time, and um, it involved recruiting volunteers for three different clubhouses. It was really funny on campus because it got to a point to where people would like almost um, look away because I'm like, hey, want to volunteer? Come on (laughs) to clubhouse today. They're like, I can't make it that's all right. I'll catch you tomorrow. We're meeting then too. But I fell in love with the kids and the relationship. And so at the time, I thought the very best way for me to help these students was to get involved in policy. And um, so I went to pursue my doctorates in sociology and Rose, I hated it. Yeah. I loved what I was learning, but I didn't have time for that clinical practice. And I missed the relationships. So I think that what I learned that first year was absolutely fundamental, Um, but it fueled me to cross over to the other side of the street and take up the urban teacher education program. 
And Tracy, those students in that after-school program, and can you tell me back then, if you had to summarize their socioeconomic level, their status, tell me about them. And we're not to say that all of them came from the same background. There was a a pattern here. What would you say? What would you tell me about those kids? Absolutely a pattern. Um, Part of my sociology work in Greenville was to study that area and to study historical segregation laws. Um, To this day, there is a physical brick wall that still stands that used to divide neighborhoods by race. And um, the three neighborhoods that I worked with were in predominantly African-American communities, um, low income, and the particular clubhouse that I was closest to and volunteered with the most, um, that area has now, all those kids have been displaced. It's been gentrified on the west end of Greenville. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sure does. Did you ever study critical race theory in college? I did. I actually studied it as an undergrad and have recently used it in my own research on gentrification and school choice in Atlanta. Do you think CRT, as we call it, and I think I know the answer to this based on what you said, but is an important education concept to teach future educators? It absolutely is. One of the most important things that has informed my own practice is being part of CREATE. It's a teacher residency program here in Atlanta. And the big focus is on equity. It's looking at student work with an equity lens. It's communicating across differences with our colleagues and really learning how to tear down some of these structures and acknowledging systemic barriers. Why do you think through your lens, this is through your your opinion, why do you think there's all of a sudden now this wave of wanting to ban teaching critical race theory and particularly at the K through 12 level when from what I'm hearing and learning, it's rare that it's taught at the elementary and even middle and high school level. What's your take on all this, Tracy? Absolutely. I think that the choice to, you know, and they didn't use critical race theory in the resolution itself, but we do know that that's what was being referred to. Mm -hmm. I think it highlights a lack of informed decision-making. And at the end of the day, a lot of people fear what they don't know. And so I think it comes from a place of fear. Um, I hate, absolutely hate that there's two tenets of it that seem to lie on feelings. One, the fact that we're going to ignore systemic racism because of white people's feelings. And secondly, what's disturbing is that it seems to rely on a student's feelings. How many times have our children of color been ignored? How many times have the feelings of parents expressing themselves um, gone unheard? In the classroom, even at the high school um, level, you're not going to see a teacher presenting an article going, this is critical race theory. Instead, we're teaching it in different ways. So for example, I'm offering multiple perspectives. When I teach about Native Americans, I offer the the Eurocentric white Christian um, Columbus version, everything's happy hunky-dory. But then I also offer a book called Encounter that shows a Native American's perspective Mm -hmm. and how frightening it must have been being taken away to be enslaved. Um, it's important to show these things. It's important for teachers to have books in their classroom that reflect the lives of their, the kids in their class. The voice you hear is Tracy Nance Pendeley, ex-officio Georgia Board of Education member and Teacher of the Year for 2020-2021. And we're talking about critical race theory and the recent decision by the Georgia Board of Education to pass a resolution banning the teaching of critical race theory from public schools. Everything that you're telling me and our listeners are hearing, I'm assuming that you expressed these same comments to the board. Were they, were any of them receptive? Did they understand? Sure. I, um, I was the first to speak out against the resolution. Um, I have received hundreds of emails from stakeholders across the state opposing this resolution. And um, only two so far in favor of it. And at that time, I hadn't received a single one in favor of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spoke against it and two members did speak after me and um, say that they, the resolution itself made them feel unheard, like their experiences mm-hmm. had not mattered. In one of the conversations I just had and the guests talked about concerns of what something like this, how it might hinder or or deter 
future educators. You've been doing this for 15 years. We need what they call good teachers, good educators, right? What is your concern, Tracy, about the banning or even even if it's just through resolution, through some type of legislation for some states? I think that teachers already have such a difficult time in the eyes of the public. You know, we saw it this past year. In March of 2020, we were heroes all of a sudden. And then when we asked for vaccinations before being forced back into the class buildings, all of a sudden we were lazy and didn't want to do our jobs. Um, And I think that this would be one more set of eggshells for us to tiptoe around. And I don't know that it's wholly possible when it hinges on feelings. Part of the resolution says that teachers are not to encourage or teach like active protesting and that no assignments can involve that. However, even in my fourth grade classroom, I teach my kids to call their senators. I teach because, you know, most adults my age don't know how to reach out to their senator. And so you better believe that we have a script. The kids call and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a future voter in zip code, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And this is what I'm concerned about. And this resolution, if a rule is created out of it, would prevent me from doing that. And that doesn't seem right. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a long time since I've been in an elementary history class, but wasn't the Boston Tea Party a protest? Hey, all kinds of protests throughout history, you know? So I'm, I'm shocked. Um, I think it comes from a lack of knowledge. I, you know, someone in the, at the DOE told me that critical race theory has been the number one Googled term from school leaders and legislators over the last couple of weeks. And it just shows that they haven't, they're not well read. You know, what's interesting this time last year, speaking of the Google search and everyone was Googling um, how to be an ally and Mm anti-racism and those, the books folks were were ordering. And now this year, (laughs) critical race theory. I don't know if those books got read by the right people, Rose. (laughs) I mentioned Dr. Patina Love when I was speaking at the board and I'm like, been no on the show. <laughs> she's been on the show a few times. Yes. Yeah, I was like, no one should make a decision until they've read. We want to do more than to survive, you know? Um, so it's disappointing. And I can only promise to your listeners that I'm going to keep speaking out. I'm going to keep standing up because like Dr. Bettina Love and Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, Beverly Tatum, I do not call it an achievement gap, that gap that exists between our students of color and white students. It's an education debt. We owe our kids the very best. And the best way to do that is to acknowledge those systemic barriers and make sure that we're taking steps to tear them down. What is your advice to someone who's gonna be a first-time teacher this fall, maybe fourth grade, they're listening. First of all, I want you to go into education. We need passionate teachers that carry conviction for, you know, helping our students and building relationships with them. I say, go into the classroom, learn who your kids are in front of you, get to know them, and then you close your door and teach those babies. You teach them to take ownership of their learning. You teach them to identify bias. You teach them to look at history through multiple lenses and to think for themselves. What's your response to a parent who says, shouldn't that really come more from me as the parent and your job is to teach the basics? I'm, I'm, I've received emails about this. So I'm actually reading, paraphrase a little bit what a, a listener wrote. Shouldn't teachers just be teaching the basic? It's up to me as a parent to teach my child to be a critical thinker. Oh, I would disagree so strongly with that because it's teachers who are providing the content for that critical thinking, right? We're not supposed to just throw up, you know, regurgitate information. That's no good. If we were to teach our kids to be active citizens, we have to teach them how to think. And when I talk to my parents, I really considered the relationship. Um, We're partners. We pass that baton off in the morning and in the afternoon, I hand it back. And so it's critical that we see our roles as very similar. You get them in the morning and in the evenings, I got them in the middle of the day. And we're teaching them the same important skills. You've been teaching for 15 years. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You're not going to switch and become a politician or 
it's funny. I've heard a little bit of that this past year. You should run for office. Um, but I have two goals right now. One of them is to start writing, to write a memoir. Um, a lot of my advocacy started in my own childhood. I wasn't the typical child. Um, I beat the odds for a couple of reasons. I had excellent educators. And then when I was 16, I had a wealthy uncle take me in. I had privilege. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to pay it forward. I really do. So um, I want to write a memoir and I want to go to school and get my EDD in leadership. Tracy Nance Pendley, ex-official Georgia Board of Education member. But I think she likes this title even more. Teacher of the current teacher of the year for 2020-2021. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being an educator. And fourth grade is really cool. Absolutely. You're a gem. Thanks, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.